the Ram Dhamma's kingdom. Episode 20, the victor will never be asked if he told the truth. It was as if his tremendous grief had imploded inward. Even though he had no control over the ruthless actions of the Ram Dhamma, he had still pushed the lock in place and vaporized them all. Daka's face, like the bright sun, was burnt into his mind. She was dead, just like everyone else, leaving McGee stupefied, no longer able to cope, wasted and alone. When he slowly opened his eyes, he saw the silver bullet-shaped capsule locked into its floor position. He propped his hand on the top and stood on his feet. Through the front window slit, he saw a very compact and solid green tunnel, more likely a pinpointed version of the pulsating distortion, a narrow path that was brightening as he gained velocity. He staggered to the control chair and felt the force fields encompass his body. He recognized the complex geometric patterns on the edge of the continuum. The Thion ship crashed through the barrier and emerged in deep amber light. As he rose above the skies, he recognized the complex geometric patterns on the edge of the continuum. The Thion ship crashed through the barrier and emerged in deep amber light. As he rose above the sides of the continuum, brilliant swashes of beautiful color spewed over the window. The braid was forming ahead of him and the ship went over its predetermined arc. Tranquility prevailed in the quietness of the continuum that held all time together. In the distance he saw other braids, probably from the Thion experiments, but even more frightening they could have been from another advanced civilization. He stared into the intricate amber network of crisscrossing lines. As much as it hurt, Harry McGee accepted defeat. Defeat of the past. Defeat of the effort. Defeat of values evil over good, death over life. Now was not the time for introspection, nor to contemplate the past again and again. His mind was settled into one pattern, a pattern that reoccurred throughout every nerve pathway and leaped across every synaptic junction. No matter what the risk, the Ram Dhamma would be killed. Nothing else mattered more. And as this one thought permeated his brain, he neglected to keep abreast of the heightened green timeline. It had moved back along the white tube, and the blue digits were moving back in time. 1960.46. The ship, without the tracking beams, was slowly moving from its preset course. McGee was down the far side of the braid, and he could see the matrix growing brighter. That's when he glanced at the blue digits. Several seconds had passed before it hit him. 1876, he yelled as he leaped to his feet. With both hands, he slapped at the silver sphere, rotating it to the right. The timeline was moving ever so slowly, and the matrix was getting ever so closer. 1910, 1910, come on! Braking systems were on. The ship was losing velocity. It was going to hit the side of the sphere, and McGee was at a loss to how he was going to move the sphere to 1982. The sphere was meant for fine-tuning, not for changing the course over a hundred years. 1926, he yelled as the entire front of the window slit was filled with thousands of bisecting amber lines. Cramps tightened. He screamed loudly as he bashed into the continuum and was hurled against front gauges. He bounced back to the floor as the outside became dark. The white tube lighted his sprawled figure. His heart pounded as he looked up at the digits on the window's readout box. It hovered indefinitely between 1934 
1933. Again, he closed his eyes. All that could have been done was done. Hours passed. He drifted in and out of half-real dramas, not fully in control of his beleaguered mind. Very slowly, there was a distinct smidgen of white light. In seconds, it brightened into an outside image on planet Earth. The ship had materialized on top of a small dirt knoll, but without the retraction beams, it was unstable. It kicked and bucked like a stubborn mule. Sparks shot out of the time gauge tube as McGee once again grabbed the time capsule. But it fell out of its housing and rolled head over heel down the rear of the ship. Smoke was quickly filling the ship. Crawled across the floor and dug his fingers around the side of the red square. Coughing, he ripped at it, fighting for his life. It seemed to be on some type of catch, like a spring. He had to push it all the way to the far side, holding it in place as he tried to slip through, but the ship was rocking, and the large silver time capsule rolled toward the opening. He moved to the right, still holding the square open as it zoomed right by him and out of the ship. He wasted little time in lowering his body outside, and the red square slapped shut above him, and the red square slapped shut above him. He scrambled across the dirt and away from the ship, the fresh air soothed his lungs as he ran along the hillside. Low-hanging clouds rose hundreds of feet into the air, forming a foreboding thunderhead across a long stretch of green field. The rain began pelting his body as he reached the bottom of the hill and turned. Even from the bottom of the knoll, the ship was emitting unnatural sounds as it built up toward an imminent explosion. He watched the ship glow bright red, then white as it simply faded from view, leaving the splattering rain on the dirt road. McGee stumbled over to a group of cornstalks on the other side of the road and fell to the ground. As he pushed himself up against the stalk, a small boy moved his bicycle around the side. Who the hell are you? asked the startled McGee. English? said the boy with an obvious German accent. You speak English? The boy nodded his head. I know some, he said as he looked back toward the hill. You had a rocket ship? Right, where am I, boy? Schlein, are you all right? Germany. Germany, asked McGee as he got to his feet again. What year is this? This is 1933. Good God, said McGee, his eyes in a vacant stare across the sheets of rain. Are you American? Yes, I'm an American, an American grateful just to be back on Earth. My name is Harry McGee, he said, extending his hand. I am Willy, Willy Schmidt. Well, Willy Schmidt, damn grateful that you speak English. Where's the next town from here? Town? Oh, Nuremberg. Nuremberg, said McGee as the sun broke through the rain and heightened the cornstalk. Hitler. That's Führer. He is speaking at the valley tomorrow. He is speaking at the valley tomorrow. That's the answer. Smiled McGee as the rain drizzled on his sunlit face. The answer. Willie Schmidt, you've given me the answer. Me? He said, pointing to himself as McGee picked him up in his arms. You live in Nuremberg, Willie? Yes, sir. I'll carry you to Nuremberg, son. I'm going to change the world. Harry McGee was a minuscule dot within the thousands of cheering people. Bright red Nazi banners loomed over the pavilion at the Leutpold Arena in Nuremberg, Germany. It was early September 1933. 
and the Nazis were holding a week-long rally to salute the beginning of the Thousand-Year Reich. McGee had acquired the clothes of the National Student Organization, the Student Bundes, a cocky shirt, dark pants, and a green tie with a small sweat sticker. Like all the proud young men, he held one of the bright red banners atop a long metal flagpole. No one had any idea who he was, where he had been, and what he was about to do. In the distance, the entourage of German leaders was passing down the corridor of people. As the arms were thrust high into the air, in the salute of obedience, he saw Adolf Hitler, just like the old discs of the era. Brown uniform, black belt, strapped diagonally across the shirt, the red armband with the black swastika. sticker. He carried his military cap and was followed by about 50 high command people. McGee had seen them all on black and white celluloid, the tiny Goebbels, the future defector Rudolf Hess, Hermann Goering, Stormtrooper Chief Ernst Rohms, and the field marshals. McGee looked at every face very carefully and then he mumbled the name of the field marshals. Field Marshal Von Ducha, one of the most ruthless men in the early Third Reich, was a man so feared he was said to have made Hitler call up extra bodyguards while he was in Von Ducha's company. According to the history books, Von Ducha, like many other of the Fuhrer's enemies, simply disappeared from view. But Harry McGee knew the proper flow of history. He knew exactly what happened to Von Ducha. McGee waited, holding his student on his flag high in the air. He raised it high as Hitler passed. The crowd was wild as he gawked at this terrifying man out of history. To his shock, Hitler looked him right in the eye as he passed. But McGee was waiting for the bigger prize. Von Ducher, his gray hair trimmed neatly under his military cap, moved forward. McGee could feel a cold chill in his blood as those dark, deep eyes caught him. He had seen those eyes terrorize and kill everything he had held dear. His hands shook as he clutched the shaft of the flagpole. Harry McGee knew he was about to die. Field Marshal walked with the others. McGee took a long breath of fresh air, his last, and then he rushed through the side guards, dipping the flag as he lunged forward. Swiftly and cleanly, the point pierced the Field Marshal's uniform. Centered under the ribs, the metal shaft pushed right through his body. You're not so invincible after all, third predicator, he cried as the field marshal, also to be known as the Ram Dama, winced in pain, and a bright red light glowed from the wound. The guards seemed to be taken aback at the inhuman light, giving McGee just enough time to see the expression of pure astonishment in the eyes of the Ram Dama. For just in a single second later, McGee's body was riddled with a hundred machine gun bullets. He only felt the pain for the briefest period of time before he collapsed to the ground. The guards whisked Hitler and the others out of the area. They had formed a circle around the Ram Dama, blocking him from the crowd. Medics ran over quickly to the stricken field marshal. They listened for a heartbeat. They heard nothing as his body faded into a brilliant barrage of red light within a central yellow core and, and fell as crimson dust on the dirt. Above space and time, the inner continuum sphere flashed very brightly, dissolving into darkness. The third predicator, the Eucrasian who had diverted the flow of history, had been halted before the critical juncture. 
As the complex amber matrix weaved its way back into existence, history had resumed its true and proper course, at least the true and proper course to those who survived it. The large white-haired woman shuffled across the office floorboards. She was upset, pursing her lips every few steps as she moved forward to the front window. Snow was in the air late that afternoon. The heavy flakes floated down only to dissolve on the warmer pavement. He looked down at the narrow streets and up the hill. Her boss was late, and from experience, she knew his tardiness could only signal the beginning of trouble. Shaking her head, she returned to her desk and activated a small television screen. The front door opened, funneling the cooler air across the room. Damn cold, damn cold, said her boss, a slender man in a knitted brown suit. He closed the door and rubbed his hands together. His blonde hair was parted in the middle and covered with moisture. Damn cold, Effie, damn cold. It's not that cold, Harry. If you'd wear your overcoat. I must have left it somewhere last night, he said as he blew into his hands. I think. So where have you been, Harry? She asked. He walked over to the forced hot air heater behind her desk. I'm sure you've been able to handle things, he smiled. And I do love your concern, he said, pinching her cheek. It's a case, isn't it? You started working on a case and you haven't told me. Let me get you some coffee, she said as he pretended to shiver. Would I start something and not tell you, Effie? You most certainly would, she laughed and handed him the cup of black coffee. Look, being a private investigator has its advantages, he said, gulping the warm coffee. And its disadvantages. The advantages being money, I suppose, she said, sitting down again. Of course. Name one thing more important than having money. I could name a number of things. Effie, we've been over this all before. I'm going to have the things I never had. I'm 25 years old and I'm just beginning to live. No matter what the cost. Stop the philosophizing. I just have plans, okay? It's just a matter of time. Time for what? Moving to California or Florida and living in Shangri-La for the rest of your life? Well, Harry, life is a bit more complicated than that, she lectured. McGee rolled his eyes and looked over at the screen as he sipped his coffee. Money will be your demise, Harry, she continued as she pointed her finger. Spending on wild woman or those fancy computer systems you have. Are you quite through, he smiled. He had heard the motherly talk before. It was the television, however, that was drawing his attention. I wonder if Elmer will ever get that screwy wabbit, he asked, laughing as he entered his own office. He shut the door and walked over to the terminal next to his desk. As he sat back in his chair, Effie came running through the door. Harry, there's a... What is it, Effie? Did A.L. Thomas come in early? No, someone just walked out of the bag. She's got a... Uh... Oh, for God's sakes, Effie said McGee as he rose, but Effie stepped inside. A woman with steel blue eyes and flowing blonde hair wheeled a highly reflective capsule through the doorway. McGee, far from being upset, seemed to pause, studying her features carefully. He walked over to the door and began to close it. That'll be all, Effie, he said, shutting it. Then he looked at the woman. She was crying softly. I can see it in your eyes, McGee, she said as she nodded. Dr. Schmidt was right. He was right. Do you have a name? McGee asked as he glanced at the capsule. My name? My name is Annie Sinclair, McGee. You talk as if you know me. Do you know me? Oh, yes. I know you very well. You see, 
our lives, all of our lives are so transitional. Schmidt told me that many times, and it took him so long to figure it all out. Everything in the Thion time capsule. He sent his operatives to this country just to find me, McGee. Well, this is all so bizarre. I don't know what to say. Don't say anything, McGee. I've come for you. I'll show you from whence we have come and where we're going. And then you, Harry McGee, will see the true meaning of reality. Thank you for listening to the Ram Dhamma's Kingdom by Robert P. Fitton. Copyright 2023 by the Robert P. Fitton Revocable Trust. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.
Thank you for listening to whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> I am so tired. Thank you. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Thank you for listening to the Ram Dama's Kingdom, book two. No. Thank you for listening to the Ram Dama's Kingdom by Robert P. Let's do that again. <laughs>